Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. You know, I was listening to that introduction about being informed, and I think that really fits with my show today. So thank you, everybody, for joining me and my guest, Dave Clue. He is the Executive VP of Operations and Training at Micronuclear LLC. Welcome to the show, Dave. Well, Marsha, thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I feel like I'm, I'm in class, sir, and I'm looking forward. I know you have some educational background, and I'm looking forward to learning more about what it is you do. But before we get into what exactly you're doing currently, I thought you could just, you know, and, and that can include this. I'd like to know a little bit about you. Please, you know, please tell us about yourself. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm actually from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is a, which was used to be a steel town about 55 miles north of Philadelphia. And uh, yes, Bethlehem is one of these places. It was founded on Christmas Eve in 1742, and there's a big history <laughs> behind that. So it's a marvelous pl- it's, an, it's a marvelous place to be from. Um, went to uh, high school in upstate New York, and we moved up to uh, Endicott, New York, and oh, yeah. I graduated from. The- oh my God. <laughs> What? We have a oh, connection here? Yes. My <laughs> husband went up into Endicott. Oh, my goodness. Go ahead. Wow, that just no touched kidding. my heart. Go, no, I'm not kidding. Okay, we'll talk about off the air. This is about you, not okay. about my husband. Okay, oh, my God. Well, okay. All right, so I graduated from Endicott, Union Endicott High School and then mm-hmm. uh, joined the Navy right after the day after I graduated from high school. Mm. I, uh, I had joined the Navy because I had researched. What I wanted to do after high school graduation, and in those days, uh, college was not on the horizon, but the mm-hmm. uh, the draft was. And mm-hmm. uh, my uh, my stepsister's fiance had been in the, was in the navy, and he was a torpedo man on a nuclear submarine. And he said mm-hmm. uh, to me that because of my background in high school, having studied electronics and academics, that I was a perfect candidate to be an electronics technician in the navy. And so uh, the day after, I took the tests and all that kind of stuff that you did in those days and ended up mm-hmm. going to boot camp the, the day after I graduated. And, mm-hmm. and after boot camp, I was assigned to the, uh, the Navy's electronics technician training program uh, at the naval base in Treasure Island in San Francisco. And for a 17-year-old kid at the time to go to uh, San Francisco in the uh, <laughs> early to <laughs> mid-1960s was a treat. First time mm-hmm. really away from home, something like that. And then from there, after I graduated from there, I, I was fortunate enough to be accepted into the U- U.S. Navy's Nuclear Power School. And that's the school that Admiral Rickover started uh, back in the 1950s in order for people to learn how to operate the nuclear reactors on our first nuclear submarines, including the USS Nautilus. So be, to be accepted at that school 
was a privilege, and it is still the most difficult academic thing I have done in my life. (laughs) But uh, when I graduated from that, uh, I was assigned to a nuclear power prototype. This is the one that I went to in Idaho at the National Reactors Testing Station there. And I qualified as a reactor operator on the same nuclear power plant that was being used on the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. Mm. And uh, then after that, um, the Navy uh, was in the building process for submarines, but there weren't enough billets for me yet on a submarine. So I ended up going on an old World War II destroyer that went to Vietnam. Hmm. And uh, this happened to be one of the life-changing events of my life because not only going to Vietnam uh, and serving over there uh, on a Navy ship, where we did a variety of different types of missions. I won't go into that. That's not what this conversation is about. <laughs> but I will, I will tell you it was a life-changing experience because we cruised around the world. We left Norfolk, Virginia, went through the, uh, the Panama Canal, mm-hmm. crossed the Pacific Ocean, did our, did our thing in the Southeast Asia, and then we, when we went home to Norfolk at the end of the year, uh, we went through, we crossed the Indian Ocean, went through the Suez Canal, went through the Mediterranean Sea, and finally returned to Norfolk 10 months later. And so we circumnavigated the planet. Most people have never experienced anything like that. But it it was a life-changing experience for me. And then from there, I went to submarine training in uh, Groton, Connecticut, at the Navy's uh, submarine training school. And then I was assigned to a nuclear submarine where I qualified as as a reactor operator. What most importantly from that event, though, is what happened after I uh, had my tour in the submarine, and that is a tour as an instructor at the Navy's training center in Pearl Harbor for submarines and nuclear power, where I taught radiation health physics and uh, reactor principles. And that was a three-year assignment, and that's how I got involved in education, was doing that. Um, Then the uh, military sent me to the University of Washington. I had applied for a scholarship for a commissioning program. I was an E6 at the time. And uh, gratefully, I was accepted and studied geology and oceanography at the University of Washington, where I graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in geological oceanography. And uh, while I was in school, I was also an undergraduate teaching assistant. So that's, that further uh, reinforced my educational mm-hmm. background. And um, then I finished out my career as a naval officer, mostly in engineering. I did have a tour as a navigator once. <clears throat> and then um, after I retired from the military, I taught high school science, Pensacola mm-hmm. High School, and, and uh, also a naval science there. Uh, and, then, and then a friend of mine, he might be listening to this broadcast right now, <laughs> Uh, uh, recommended me for a job as a person in charge of the curriculum support and development for the Navy Fighter Weapons School, also known as Top Gun, and also the F-14 fighter, F-14D variant of the fighter where it was being introduced to the fleet, uh, VF-124. And that, again, was uh, this was in curriculum development and curriculum support. We ran the uh, flight simulators there. We, uh, we had the instructors that were employed for the flight simulators. And, and so 
it is this continuing business of now adult education, and mm-hmm. that continued after the after the uh, the job with uh, with the uh, assignment with uh, Top Gun and the VF one twenty four and my gosh, and Dave. To, so that's that's uh, so I've been an educator wow. forever. Okay. <laughs> yes, you have. Well, let's talk about what you where we are today, and I guess where yeah. I would like to start because I mentioned that you work for Micronuclear um, LLC, and you're training. I can see why. What does micronuclear reactor mean to somebody like me that maybe has no idea what this is about? Well, most people have only heard about the large light water reactors, sometimes called a pressurized water reactor. These are the reactors that that were built uh, primarily in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and uh, they supplied a lot of power, sometimes as much as 1,000 megawatts. Uh, those of you here in California that are listening to this, of course, you know about San Onofre and, and a couple of the other uh, places, Diablo Canyon. And these were large nuclear power plants that actually had their genesis with the United States Navy. It was mm. the United States Navy and Admiral Rickover's program. In fact, Admiral Rickover, Rickover was personally involved in some of the development of the first nuclear power plants that were used to generate electricity for a large number of people. This is, again, back in the late 1950s and early 1960s when those plants were designed. But they were, they were, in almost every sense, uh, the, the the benefit of what the Navy was doing with nuclear power back in the uh, back in the 1950s, and so that's what most people are thinking of when they think of a nuclear power plant. And of course, on the downside, people think of Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima as as the well, the, the not so good side of nuclear power. But it is a fact that, that a considerable amount of our energy was produced by light water reactors, pressurized water reactors, and they, they, could, they could supply a large number of people, and they were completely and totally carbon-free and emission-free. They are safe plants, and the, uh, the United States has had a good record, even with uh, what happened at Three Mile Island, and we don't need to go into that here. That's not sure. what this is about. No. But the molten salt type of reactors, the micro-reactors that are designed today is part of the evolutionary process of where we have gone with nuclear power over the last 30 to 35 years. So we learned a lot from what happened with our pressurized water reactors and the accidents that have happened with Fukushima and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. We've learned a lot. And uh, we know that the, the, the technology uh, had the opportunity to involve, evolve. And that's what it did. And so what we have learned now is that, well, you know, these big plants can supply a lot of power. But why not take a look at a concept where, where maybe the, the plants are smaller, they're more modularized. And uh, instead of having one big, huge plant, maybe you have several modular reactors to, uh, to, to supply the same amount of power. The advantage that gives you is that you can take a smaller plant offline and have less of an effect on the electrical grid. In other words, when you turn on your switch for the lights to go on, you want the lights to go on. You don't want to have a rolling blackout. You don't want to have no electricity. And so large nuclear power plants, and whether it's 
nuclear power or whether it's a coal-fired power plant or a natural gas-fired plant, whenever you have a large producer of electricity, a large system that makes a lot of, a lot of megawatts, 1,000 megawatts is not unusual. Well, if you've got to take that offline to do maintenance, you have just affected a, a significant part of our electric grid. The grid is where all of our electricity comes from. And so you've taken a big plant offline to do maintenance. Well, we've learned over the years that we should have modular reactors and uh, smaller plants that you can take off the line and do maintenance on that one. And you maybe instead of uh, affecting 1,000 megawatts, maybe now you affect the megawatts. And mm, then we got into something even, yeah, a huge difference. And so it gives you more reliability for electrical supply with the electric grid. And now you take it one step further and say, well, why don't we go down even smaller than a modular nuclear reactor, which could be 60 megawatts, let's say. There's a company that is doing that. They're called New Scale Power. And, uh, and I, have been in, I have worked with New Scale Power, and uh, they have a modular reactor that can, uh, that can emit about 60 megawatts. So you take one of those off the line, and you're not having that much of an effect on the grid. But why not go down even smaller than that, something that is more portable, something that is, that is able to be installed uh, maybe within infrastructure, like, oh, maybe a hospital, uh, maybe a small community, maybe in a remote place that needs reliable, sustainable power, but you don't need a whole lot of it. And so you can take a micro-reactor, which is even smaller than the modular reactor. Instead of maybe 60 megawatts, a micro-reactor will emit 10 megawatts of electricity. Now you can install these at precise locations within the grid and use that as a, another means to enhance the reliability of the electric grid. So that's the difference between a large nuclear power plant, or even, like I say, a large coal-fired power plant or any, any other type of plant that is producing electricity and going down into a concept where you think of smaller systems that have more uses. And with a smaller system, of course, especially a micro-reactor, you can do more than just produce electricity with it. Why it's don't we get into that? Heat. Sure. I want to get into that in just a little bit, but before we move over there, there were just another couple of questions that I would just like to have have some more information about. Because I mentioned at the top of the hour that you are the Executive VP of Operations at Micronuclear LLC, and I'm just curious, what exactly does – is Micronuclear like the parent of the molten sea nuclear reactor? What, what does Micronuclear do itself? Well, okay, so the easy answer to that is uh, we have designed, developed, we, we have designed, and we will complete development, and then we will market and deploy a molten salt nuclear battery, okay. which is an advanced microreactor for, and it can be intended uh, uh, to, uh, to be green, have no emissions, carbon-free, and has multiple uses. So that's basically what we do. We're a designer, a developer, a marketer, and an operator. Okay. Okay. So, so do you have a large team of people that you work with at Micronuclear? 
No. As a matter of fact, that's one of the advantages. We don't have a large team. <laughs> uh, and, uh, oh, that's funny. Uh, that uh, we're, we're, we're lean, mean, and compact, okay? Okay. And, and, and as we get further into uh, some of the, the additional things we're doing with the, uh, the final development before mm-hmm. we uh, manufacture, yes, we will be hiring more people. Uh, but Terrific. right now, uh, right now, we're, 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 we're a pretty close-knit group. Well, that's, that's, that's very interesting to know. And I might just mention for those of you listening, especially if this is a subject that touches you, you can go to the website and you would just type in micronuclear, but add the word tech micronuclear t-e-c-h com there's a great video there there's a lot of information there and um you can learn more um even when this podcast is over there but you mentioned that um when i when i wanted to know what is what is the technology perhaps maybe what you could do is tell us how does this sultan um i'm sorry i was saying i'm saying the wrong word how does the molten molten salt nuclear yeah. battery actually function how does how does it how does it work well let's uh let's that's an excellent question uh we could we could spend about a year on that um, no you don't have I'll a year honey it, uh, <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry I'll miss into, dinner <laughs> into, into something more concise so it is yes, a nuclear sir. reactor now that okay. means we are using uranium to create nuclear fission and nuclear fission is what happens when a neutron from another source maybe another fission hits a uranium atom now uranium is way up there on the periodic periodic chart it has it's 92 in terms of its uh, atomic number 92 which means it's a really big heavy atom big heavy nucleus and because of its size it is sort of unstable in other words yeah it's being held together by some nuclear forces that get really complex in the nuclear physics but but uh, if you hit it with a neutron uh, what it's going to do is uh, going to split apart it's like uh, well that's that's about the best analogy I could I could give okay. you it's a big heavy nu- it's a big heavy nucleus of an of an of an atom and you hit that with a with a with a neutron that happens to be moving at a certain kinetic energy it gets close to and inside that nucleus of that uranium atom and it causes it to fracture split apart now that's called nuclear fission now when that happens when that happens the parts that are split up from that from that nucleus happen to have kinetic energy associated with them. And because oh. it has kinetic energy, it is moving around amongst other atoms in the same vicinity in that really, really tight uh, uh, lattice structure of, of, of those atoms. And as it's moving around, it's creating heat. So kinetic energy makes heat. All right? Now, All right. when you add up the mass of the products, the two the t- pieces that were split apart when it, when they were, when it was hit by the neutron, when you add up the mass of those two pieces, it could be two different, completely different elements. But when you add up all the mass of what has happened after that uranium atom has split, 
you end up with a deficit in mass. In other words, it's slightly lighter, very, very slightly lighter than before the nuclear fission reaction. And that difference in mass is equated to energy. And it follows Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared, where that Got mass it. differential times the speed of light squared tells you energy that has been released by the kinetic energy created by the by the the uranium nucleus being split apart with a neutron. Now where do those neutrons come from? Well, some of them are naturally occurring within the the uranium itself. But one of the things that is also created when that fission happens is that you get about two and a half more neutrons per fission. So this thing cascades itself. Maybe you, uh, sometime in your, in your life, in your science courses, you may have seen an old film where, one, where a, a group of high school students put a bunch of um, <clears throat> ping pong balls on mouse traps and put them all over a high school and then taken one ping pong, ping pong ball and throws it in the middle of the gymnasium with all these mouse traps with the ping pong balls mm. on it and all of a sudden the whole thing explodes. <gasps> that is wow. nuclear fission. Okay? Wow. So it, occur, it occurs with a uranium nucleus mm -hmm. divided in, in essentially in two pieces by a neutron and you add up all the mass of that reaction and it comes up short. And E equals MC squared says that's where the energy is. But this happens to be in the form of kinetic energy, and that kinetic energy creates heat. And we use that heat as a source of energy to do a number of things with it. So we can use it to go into a turbine generator to make electricity, or we can just use the heat itself as process heat, maybe to provide industrial purposes, heat for industrial purposes, or we take that heat and we create a, we use it to create hydrogen that could be used as another energy source, like to power your car. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, or you can use it to uh, distill salt water into fresh water. Hmm. Interesting. So that's what my, yeah, so a microreactor is a natural evolution of what we had 70 years ago with the United mm -hmm. States Navy going into the commercial nuclear industry with those, big, with those big nuclear power plants that provided a lot of electricity and now evolving into something more compact and more usable down into the microreactor. Okay? Wow. So who's going to manufacture this? Well, we have secured an agreement with Premier Technology in Blackfoot, Idaho. Now, these guys know how to make stuff. They're really, mm -hmm. really good at it. They have all the latest and greatest computer-controlled uh, fabricating equipment, and they also have a special certification that allows them to produce mm. nuclear components. In other words, they are authorized by their experience uh, to, and it's by, by special permit, they are authorized to fabricate and manufacture our microreactor, the molten Wonderful. salt nuclear battery. Wow. Yeah. So how long, that's, that's really interesting. So how long do you think it will be before the battery is actually ready for its commercial customers? Well, let me walk you through the, uh, the timeline here because I, okay. I can't go into the details right now, but okay. we, are, we, are work, we are working with one of the uh, national labs uh, 
to get into the get into the what we call first vision. In other words, uh, when you when you go from your final design into uh, uh, making the first prototype, it has to be tested accordingly. And so that has to happen first. And then after we do that, then uh, we will complete all of all of that. And then uh, it goes back to Premier to actually start producing the commercial the commercial vehicles. Now we're saying that that's, that this entire process, starting today, uh, to delivery to our first customer, is going to take quote several years. Okay. It could be less than that. But the big difference is, is that we're talking only a few years as compared to decades with a large mm-hmm. nuclear power plant. This is a different type of design environment, and um, and so it's uh, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't go through the exactly the same process. But uh, suffice it to say that it, that uh, the the next phase is basically a proving prototype, where we actually build the first one, fuel it test it and then from there we uh, then then that's when you go into manufacturing uh, it's just like any any other machine that you ba- that you make whether it's an automobile or an airplane mm-hmm. or a nuclear power plant uh, you you don't go from something existing on a drawing selling to the selling to your customer without going through a process so we're going through that process right now yeah I just I I'm looking at your website Dave as we're speaking and you had mentioned this a little bit earlier about how the that molten salt nuclear battery who it affects and you mentioned military bases pardon me and remote villages and hospitals and i mean it sounds like this is going to be phenomenal in affecting so many different places in our world i i mean I'm just wondering how this change is going to um, affect um, the energy infrastructure. Well, it is going to have a significant effect, and of course, uh-huh. as the as the number of micro reactor installation grows, uh, then the it, it's going to have you know a cascading effect on on reducing the. Uh, the risk of the grid going into uh, into blackouts or brownouts or, or uh, rolling blackouts, and um, uh, so the I want to I want to I want to make sure I, I I say this in a way that everybody's going to understand it. It's going to start Thank out you. slow, okay? okay? It will start out slow, but it it, it is it, it as it as it starts to grow, it start it's probably going to grow exponentially. And okay. uh, we we have we have discussed those plans with our manufacturer, Premier Industries, Premier Technology, and mm-hmm. uh, they're prepared to uh, ramp up accordingly. Uh, and obviously, in other locations of the world, if this if this if this takes takes up the momentum that we think it's going to have, uh, there are other manufacturers elsewhere outside of this country that could probably manufacture it as well. But uh, for right now, we're going to start out slow, and uh, and and we know that once this catches on, it's it's literally going to take off. Uh, especially, I think, when we move toward the production of hydrogen as the real alternative to uh, 
uh, to going all electric with all electric vehicles. And I think hydrogen is going to be the answer. And in order to produce that hydrogen, you're going to want to produce it in many, many locations. So you minimize the infrastructure that it's going to take to deliver that hydrogen to maybe uh, your end user. Your end user can be something as simple as a gas station. Uh, things are going to change. Hydrogen, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of other people, hydrogen is going to be our answer to propel our privately owned vehicles in the future. They are, it, it, it is, does not make sense to try to go all electric. We don't have the infrastructure for batteries. We don't uh, have enough power to even charge electric cars right now. I don't have to tell you people in California what happened last <laughs> summer. All right. When you were told, okay, we're all going to go all electric, but uh, by the way, don't charge your car during the day because we don't have enough electricity. Right. right? So we know, we know there's going to be a problem there. And people are starting to learn that the real answer is hydrogen. If I explain that, you want me to explain that now? Because I, I can well, tell I'm, you a little I'm bit just, of the story behind it. Well, I would, but I, let me just be... Let me just, I'm not going to apologize for not knowing what I don't know. So I heard myself start to do that. So by using <laughs> hydrogen, that you're not saying that we won't need gasoline, right? Well, that's a, that, I, I think that is, I don't think we're, again, this is a personal opinion. Okay. Uh, there is always going to be a use for our petroleum products. But here's, here's, what I, here's what I can tell you of the experiments that have already been done with hydrogen. Many companies that I'm aware of have already done the experiment to use hydrogen in place of gasoline. Wow. What has to be changed, what has to be changed is the injection system. Instead of having an injection system or a carburetor, you have an injection system that handles a gas, hydrogen. And so that injection system takes the place of your carburetor and injects the hydrogen directly into the piston of your internal combustion engine. The, I, know, I, I know several companies that have, that have already done that experiment. One of them is mm -hmm. right here in Seattle, Washington. And they've already done that experiment. And the second thing that, is, that has already been invented is how you're going to store and use that hydrogen. It's not going to be stored at a great pressure or liquid hydrogen. It, it, can, it can be stored in a special type of metallic matrix that people are nicknaming as a hydrogen sponge where it takes the place of a gas tank. So in, instead of having a gas tank filled with gasoline, you have a gas tank filled with a hydrogen sponge. You inject the hydrogen into the, into the hydrogen sponge gasoline tank just like you would fill up at a gas station or a truck mm -hmm. stop mm -hmm. and use it exactly the same way. But now you're mm -hmm. using hydrogen instead of gasoline. So is gasoline ever going to go away? That's, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't have an entire answer to that, but okay. I can tell just, you where, things are, where yeah. things are going to head. Interesting. That, that maybe others were wondering the same thing. So will this um, – a molten salt nuclear battery replace major nuclear plants? I don't think the molten salt nuclear battery will replace major nuclear plants. What I think is going to happen 
is that the small modular reactor industry is going to step up to have more locations and uh, and that may eventually replace the large nuclear reactors with more frequent or excuse me uh, uh, a higher number of modular small modular reactors because as I said uh, maybe instead of instead of operating at a thousand megawatts you have 10 or 12 that are coupled together producing almost the same amount of energy. But now when you need, when you need to do maintenance on it, you take one off the line and uh, not the whole thing. So I think what you're going to see is a combination of small modular, modular reactors and micro reactors eventually replace the big ones. Interesting. I think that's, so the, way, I think that's the way we're going to go. That's what you see yeah. for the future. So, well, what yeah. problems does this um, a molten salt nuclear battery solve? Well, one of the things it solves, especially for the military, is uh, cyber and uh, electro- electromagnetic pulse protection. In other words, it, gives, it, it solves a problem of the need for reliable, emission-free, carbon-free, sustainable electricity. It solves that problem. Okay? And uh, and especially the especially reliable, sustainable, and emission free. Right now, uh, w- with the push toward solar and wind, you don't have that. You don't have reliable and sustainable. You don't. And the second part about that is that we are producing a micro reactor that is compact. Instead of taking thousands of acres for a wind farm we can get the same amount of energy on a quarter of an acre. Wow. So you know, you just drew a picture in my mind just now. I, excuse my interruption. I'm seeing okay. myself driving. Where were we driving? Yep. Palm Springs, Las Inter- Vegas, Inter- someplace? Yeah, interstate, yep, interstate 10 to Palm Springs. I've been there. Done yes. Yep. I've and seen, you I've see seen those... all those turbines out there. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just and... visualized that. Well, also thousands of acres of solar panels. And oh, everybody's as, putting them on their houses, right? Yes. Well, I'm not. And, and, but well, I that's fine. Are... That's that's fine on your houses, but when you when you when you carpet a desert, thinking that you're not affecting the ecosystem, when you carpet a desert with solar panels, you are affecting that ecosystem. The same thing with wind turbines. You 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 take a a a, a, a mountain ridge. Uh, and instead of let instead of letting Mother Nature do her thing on that mountain on that mountain ridge, you're installing hundreds upon hundreds of wind turbines taking up thousands of acres of land. You are affecting the ecosystem. And yes. anybody who knows anything about about uh, about nature and ecology will will admit that those those systems are taking up a lot of space. Uh, they have an effect on the ecosystem. They are not mm-hmm. reliable, and they are not sustainable. Interesting. Okay? We solve that problem with, with, the, with the microreactor, and we do it on a quarter of an acre. Okay? And that quarter of an acre supplies that energy for how much space? How much? How? Wh- how, how? Yeah, I don't know how to put that in the question. I know what you mean. And so let's say uh, let's say we're making electricity, 
and so uh, we could probably we could supply about a thousand homes, depending okay. upon the scale of what we produce. So the other thing about a microreactor is that they are scalable. We have some applications where we know people are going to want about four hundred thousand uh, kilowatts. Okay, four hundred kW. Four hundred kW. All right. 400 kW is, is uh, 400,000 watts, and uh, there will be some applications for that, especially in remote locations that have infrastructure problems. Say, uh, take, for example, Alaska. Uh, mm-hmm. Remote villages and remote communities in places like Alaska or even in the lower 48, uh, some of the islands, uh, the Hawaiian Islands, uh, Guam, some of our other other uh, island, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands. These systems are ideal for those types of applications because they are scalable. Do 400 kilowatts, or we could do up to. Well, we could go actually. We could actually go beyond 10 megawatts. We uh, uh, some of our designers are looking at some applications where we could get considerably more than 10 megawatts uh, out of a out of a microreactor, uh, out of the molten salt nuclear battery. So it uh, has applications that uh, make it very, very economical. In fact, uh, our economic engines are are significant in terms of cost. And uh, and when you add it all up, it just makes perfect sense. This is This is the way to go, especially when you're talking about special functions for locations that need power, they need it reliable, uh, they need it sustainable, and, uh, and maybe they need, maybe they need uh, 400 kW, maybe they need 10 megawatts depending upon the size, but then it can also be used for other purposes. So I said, uh, as I said earlier, uh, hydrogen production in addition to electricity or uh, in the case of uh, California again, there's a water problem, the water shortage in California. Mm-hmm. Well, a uh, microreactor and, and some of the small modular reactors are ideal systems to be used for water distillation to make fresh water out of salt water. Yeah, and we have that right here. Yeah, we have those. Oh, yeah. we have those right here, not far from where I live in the in the marina. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I think you mentioned this earlier, so perhaps you can just maybe say a little bit more about this. Did you say that this battery can then prevent rolling blackouts? Yeah, I think it it certainly can help. And it will again, help. it's going to okay. depend upon. Yeah, it will help because it's not going to. It, you have to be able to take a look at the grid and say, all right, what caused the rolling blackout in the first place? Well, mm-hmm. people were using too much electricity in comparison to the amount of electricity available. It's as simple as that. More demand than supply. All right, so how do you supplement that supply? And you can supplement that supply with microreactors and small modular reactors. And, uh, and that is a very, uh, to use a cliche, that's a doable do, okay? Mm-hmm. That's something that can happen very, very quickly, especially, uh, especially in comparison to how long it takes uh, to get a, a large nuclear power plant installed, which is decades. And so will it, can it prevent it? Absolutely. Uh, when you get the numbers that are needed there to make up the difference between demand and supply, and it's as simple as that. Uh, the rolling blackouts in the states of, uh, 
of uh, California and, uh, and Michigan and, and a couple of the others is simply because the demand is too great for the supply, and the supply is going to react accordingly. You're going to get blackouts. You're going, to get, mm-hmm. you're going to get the lights turned off in some areas in order to supply the lights to other areas that may need it more. But one of the things you can do with the microreactor, the molten salt nuclear battery, is that when you get, a, get to the point where the decision has to be made as to who's going to get electricity and who's going to get blacked out, hmm. the, the molten salt nuclear battery can be used for the critical infrastructure that must have electricity no matter what. Uh, hospitals, uh, right. uh, public facilities, um, military bases, yes. etc. You don't want those places to be without electricity. No. And no, you uh, sure so don't. the, yeah. So that's how we can affect the the issue with rolling blackouts, and then eventually we'll we'll be able to supply the numbers that are needed uh, for uh, people to uh, uh, have the electricity that they need to meet the demand, have enough supply to meet the demand. The other thing is this. So, so consider, let's say, let's do a hypothetical here and say 10, sure. 15 years down the road, we have gone hydrogen, all right? We recognize, we grew up, figured it out, uh, all electric isn't going to work. We've already seen the examples in California that it is not going to work, and there isn't enough electricity in the grid for everybody to charge their cars, period. And so... By replacing electric batteries in cars, we still have internal combustion engines where we use hydrogen in place of gasoline and batteries. And guess what? The exhaust from a hydrogen-propelled car is nothing more than water vapor, H2O. Wow. Hmm. As simple as that. And so even that will affect whether or not we have rolling blackouts. See how it works together? Wow. So let me ask you, so what challenges does it create? There's got to be some challenges along the way, right? Well, of course. And I think the first thing is what we're doing right now, and that is public perception. We need I more bet. of what We need more of what you are doing. All right? And we do have, a, we do have an active program. And uh, can I give Devin a plug here? Absolutely. Okay. We have, Absolutely. We, we, we engage the services of an extremely talented person who is helping us get the word out to educate the public as to the availability of these systems and what they mean to them personally. In other words, when you turn your lights on, when you turn your air conditioner on, you're not worried about a rolling blackout. And, and, and we are the answer. And uh, Devin Blaine is helping us to publicize what we want to do. That is the challenge, is to overcome the misperception that the nuclear industry has suffered from over the last several decades. We're going to overcome the misperception that, uh, uh, that, that uh, oh, we're not safe. Well, we are safe. We're walk-away safe. The molten salt nuclear battery is specifically designed, no matter what happens, if you lose the load, it just stays there in hot standby. Our design allows for that. It just stays there. And, uh, and if, you, uh, if, if you let it go and let it cool off on, it own, on its own, it actually turns into a solid material. 
it is what we call walk away safe. So it's safe. And then the second thing that we're overcoming a misperception, and that is associated with waste. In comparison to, in comparison to the waste created by other by large-scale pressurized water reactor systems or light water reactor systems, and even comparing the amount of waste that a molten salt nuclear battery will produce as compared to the amount of waste from a wind farm, it's not, mm-hmm. we're not even, it's not even in the same ballpark. I mean, yes. think about what you're going to do with expended turbine blades. They're not recyclable. Right. You're going to bury them. Okay? What are you going to do with the batteries that were being used to, to provide power when solar cells don't have any sun shining on them? Those batteries mm-hmm. create much more waste than, than a molten salt. I mean, it were, the molten salt nuclear battery is a fraction of the waste that is produced from batteries or, or uh, uh, solar panels or wind turbines. We are a fraction of the waste. We measure the, we're going to measure the waste in kilograms. As a matter of fact, even the fuel that a molten salt nuclear battery uses, that, that uranium fuel, 90% of it is recyclable. The 10% hmm. that is not recyclable are what we call the fission products, the actinides, the materials that are produced after that nuclear fission occurs. Many of those materials have medical uses to them. So hmm. we have solved the waste problem uh, we've mitigated that waste problem significantly, especially in comparison to what's been out there. And, and so when you add it all up, the flexibility of the system, the reliable energy that it produces, the, uh, the safety margin that we have built into the system, and the waste from nuclear power, the answer is there. And our challenge has been to get the word out to people. Sure. And that's what we're doing right now. That's the main challenge. Once the word gets out, folks are going to say, they're going to wake up and say, this is it. This is the answer. Uh, how soon can I get my car powered by hydrogen? Right. You know, how soon you know, How soon can yeah. I make sure that our military bases are protected? That kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's where we are right now. I see, you, I see you on a TED Talk. I see you on stages. I see you speaking to Chamber of Commerces. I see you speaking at a lot of civic groups. Um, I'm a Rotarian. I could see people like yourself speaking to organizations like that and getting getting in front of people. You know, I, I live by a university. I could see, you know, speaking at a university about these these things and and really drawing some interest into future students that might want to um, be involved in this. Are you associated with any college campuses up in the area where you live? Yes. University of Idaho. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, Oregon State University. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, I was a member of the Rotary Club in Corvallis, (laughs) Oregon, and we have had the talks that you just recommended. And I've Mm -hmm. also also been in Toastmasters International. Yep, I'm a Toastmaster too. That's funny. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's just not me, Marsha. I want to let I want to let you and, and, and your audience know. Yes, we have we have some talented people working yes. uh, at Micronuclear, and we're all on the road. 
uh, the, the two founders of the company, Dr. Paul Murata and Dr. Rich Christensen, uh, they're proselytizing the uh, molten salt nuclear battery. Richard McPherson, the CEO of Idaho Energy, uh, in fact, we're, we're putting up a podcast that he just completed uh, mm-hmm. with, the, uh, with a fellow by the name of David Hay. And, uh, and, and Richard, he, he's, he, he's even, I mean, we, uh, we, we, have our, we have our speakers. And every one of us, and I have to say, every one of us in the company are, are, are getting out the word. Uh, even our newest members, Devin Blaine and Al Winchell. Al Winchell is a local producer down there, a media producer in Azusa, California, mm-hmm. where you guys yeah. are. Mm-hmm. And, and we have converted Al. <laughs> So I it, love that. It is, it's a process, isn't it? I mean, it yeah. truly is a process. Whether you do what you do in your world, what I do in my world, I mean, yeah. you know, nobody loves Devin more than I do. She's provided me with exceptional people like yourself. She was actually, believe it or not, on my podcast several years ago. Um, she was the first podcast uh, January of, I think, 21. Um, but let me ask you, so, and I'd like to know what's next, what's, what's next for you guys? Well, what, what, what is next right now is to get through, uh, our first, uh, uh, first critical operations. In other words, uh, uh, get the prototype, uh, get the prototype installed. And I, and as I said, there, this is the kind of proprietary now as to who we're actually doing this with. But to, mm-hmm. to finish up that process and and uh, get it through the term where, where we are referring to it as first vision. In other words, the first time we fuel it with the molten salt and produce our heat from the first time, and then from there go into uh, manufacturing and installation and all that. Simultaneously, though, uh, we are working with several End users. Oh, that's that includes, good. Yeah, and again, we can't go into the details in that well, of course. In this conversation. But uh, with our potential customers and users, we're not letting any dust grow underneath us. There is a parallel path here, where as we are as we are going into uh, prototype and then in, into manufacturing, uh, we are we are lining up the first customers. And then this, and the second part of that is the effect that it's going to have on other industries. This isn't just about micronuclear. The heat that is produced from this system is going to be used by other pieces of equipment, whether it's a hydrogen production machine, a turbo generator to produce electric, electricity, uh, a, an industrial facility that uses our heat or a remote village that needs electricity and heat combined, all of that, everything that happens downstream of our reactor is what we call the balance of plant. In other words, that's the equipment that is going to be the recipient of our energy. That is in itself an industry, all those things. People that make hydrogen production systems, people that make turbine generators, and we are looking at some really interesting designs for turbine generators. Again, we can't talk about that over this conversation, mm-hmm. but there are some that that industry has evolved just like ours has. So mm-hmm. there is going to be a downstream effect 
of other people, other industries that utilize our products. Even even to the point of, all right, if we go all hydrogen like we like I think we're going to end up doing in in a, in a decade or two, uh, end up with hydrogen replacing gasoline. Well, that manufacturing business is going to change too. Sure. Okay. So it, 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 there is a downstream effect here that uh, is, is beyond us, and, and we know that. And so we have parallel paths going on with development. Uh, like I said, uh, we're, we're, we're lean and mean right now, and all of us are extremely busy. I bet you uh, are. You know, us. you made yeah. me think of something else. Um, my husband um, was from Detroit. His parents both worked in the, auto, in the, in the factories in, in Michigan, and I'm just visualizing driving down what is it I-90, I-95 or whatever that that freeway was when you leave the airport, and there yeah. were a lot of turbines out there too. So um, I am using the right word, right? Those propelling windmills is that are those called turbines? Am I saying the wrong word? They're they, they're wind turbines. Yeah, they're a wind, wind turbine. turbine. Uh, yeah, and that means that the the blades are spinning. A uh, the 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 blades are causing a a a generator uh, uh, to spin, and the generator is making electricity. All right. Okay. But the but the it's called a wind turbine because the blades of the wind farm the blades act as a turbine. A turbine is something that has some sort of energy going into it, whether it's steam or wind. And it causes a shaft to rotate. All right. Okay. So a wind turbine, the blades themselves are the turbine. They're creating lift. The wind is causing it to move. And when it moves, it rotates the shaft. And the shaft is geared into a generator making electricity. That's simply what a wind turbine is. Now, we use jet airplanes use a gas turbine. And they're using jet fuel to ignite inside the combustion chambers of the jet engine, and that hot gas from combustion pushes blades that causes a shaft to rotate and produce thrust. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that is a, uh, a gas turbine. So what we will have is a turbine that utilizes the heat in a certain way off of our reactor to go into a, a rotating piece of machinery where it has blades like a jet engine, and those blades create lift and cause a shaft to rotate. And then there's a generator hooked on the end of it. Okay, it's as simple as that. Well, it's not – it's a complex design. <laughs> simple but simple from where you come yeah. from. <laughs> well, it's all relative, yeah, it's isn't around, it? <laughs> been, yeah, uh, oh, turbines have been funny. around for a long time. We've been using steam turbines on ships forever. I mean, 100 years, and so we've been using steam turbines. And uh, uh, that's how we drove our ships, is that we produced steam, either from a nuclear power plant, a steam generator, or from a boiler making steam in the old-fashioned way with, with uh, liquid fuel. And, but that steam pushes a set of blades that are structured in such a way that it causes a shaft to rotate with the blade that with the blades are connected to and and either goes into a gear system where you have propellers that make a ship go through the water or a a uh, a turboprop for a turboprop airplane 
or a jet engine to produce thrust. Hmm. Wow. But, the, uh, te- but that, that fundamental engineering technology of what a turbine is has been around a long time. Mm-hmm. You've, you've had a lot of experience that started at a relatively young age about all of that, all that you've done. And I'm sure that you look back at that and you went, wow, you're right, I did that and I did that and I was on that ship and I was there and, you know, and I've taught and all of these different experiences and I guess I'm just thinking, you know, I've, I've sort of helped you think about, you know, what you do, why you love it. So I guess what I'd be curious to know, what is it about what you do that you enjoy most about your work? Well, it is doing what exactly what I'm doing right now, and that is informing, teaching. Uh-huh. Okay, and I want to also want, I want to point out that I'm not the only one in the company with that kind of background. Okay, uh, it seems like every every one of us in micronuclear has come full circle with our technology. We all started out years and years ago with different different areas. We've got mechanical engineers, uh, we have nuclear engineers, but they go back to the early days of of uh, nuclear engineering. And, uh, uh, and for all of us, where we have come full circle, taking all that experience because we believe in this particular product, the molten salt nuclear battery. And so what is most rewarding to me is, is that full circle that I have come from and mm-hmm. gone to with this, with this technology. And, I, and, I, and unfortunately, my experience and the other guys in the company feel the same way, uh, guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, men and women, because this is mm-hmm. this is a mix. And mm-hmm. the men okay. and women in this company feel the same way. Uh, we have come full circle with this technology. It is the answer, and we we can base that statement upon our collective experiences in many many other things. This has been a process of evolution that has taken us here, but we we will all use the same term. We've come full circle here. And uh, and for us, uh, us old Navy guys that that, have, that were in the early days of the nuclear power program, uh, we've, we we can say that uh, what we have right now is based upon seventy years of experience. Seven zero. Isn't that when you when you say that number? Doesn't what does that do to you? I mean, if I put my hand over my heart just then. How does that make you feel? I, uh, that's a hard question to answer. It makes me uh, scratch my head, I guess, sometimes because <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't expected. Okay, I'm I'm surprised at it, and I think some of the other guys will would will, will say the same things. Uh, and I'm, when I'm saying guys, I'm I'm using the collective I male and female that. here. Okay, I do. Yeah, and and so uh, yeah, we I think we love it. You know, it it is it comes down to that. We love what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love our product. Mm-hmm. We know it is the answer. And we're confident about that answer because of where we have come from. And it's that combination of all of it, okay? That's, that's, that's the sizzle here. And, and you know, it is a sizzle. We're, we're, we're a breed of that in all of our lives, all the things, I'm not unique. The other, the other folks in the company are the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're here because of the sizzle, and that's what makes us tick, okay? Well, it's clear by just speaking with you on a subject that I have very little ground on. 
that you are not only are you knowledgeable but you're passionate that you have this this strong feeling about this technology and and what it is going to solve for the future we may not even be here to see what it has solved but you've put in place these plans along with I'm not saying that you've done this solely please I I'm not I don't mean to say that it's just that you're the person I'm speaking with that you've put in place something with your company that's going to affect our great-grandchildren and yeah. um that not everybody can not everybody chooses a profession or uh, a desire and an interest to have that kind of an effect but um i think probably when you close your eyes and you have some balance in your life i'd like to think that you do that you are not just strictly a working person that you have the opportunity to just take a deep breath and take a walk or do whatever you do to to balance out your work schedule and your personal life so that you can deliver at such a high level i just i just want to thank you dave for for spending this time with me and not only educating me but those that are listening this has been very very informative and you've made it very easy to understand and i want to thank you for that as well marsha i want to thank you because you have just summarized what i that where it was difficult for me to say oh what I wanted to say, but you did it, and I appreciate that. Thanks. Well, you're welcome. Well, you see, here's the, here's the deal, Dave. I was born to talk. You see, that's what I do. <laughs> so you might see wind turbines, but, boy, there's a lot of wind that comes out of my sails too, honey, because I was born to talk. I've never met a stranger. So um, I just I, I appreciate you laughing and you don't look at me. Oh, my God. So needless to say, my husband, bless his heart, is he's looking down from heaven going, oh, my God, will she ever shut up. Um, I understand what it was like to live with an engineer, okay, so I get it. Um, like I, the, what I tell people affectionately, he was the rock. I was the mouthpiece. That's kind of how it works in our marriage. But, I yeah. mean, for a lot of people that have that right brain, left brain kind of marriage, which is what we had, um, you know, it, it worked well for us. So I, I, get, I get your side as well, Dave. So, once again, just thank you so very much for, for starting this Monday off on such a, on such a happy note. I, I'm really grateful, and I appreciate your time. You are most welcome. Okay, everybody. Well, guess what? It doesn't just stop here. There's another Monday next month. So uh, next month. There's Monday every month, in case you hadn't noticed. But there's another Monday in this month. So I will be back again next week. But for now, I'm going to let Dave get on with his day. And thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, share it with your friends. Tell your friends about it. This podcast can be heard anywhere. Hello. So I appreciate that as well. And for now, I'm going to say goodbye. Thanks again. See you later.